Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children up through third grade to uh, Children's Church. Go out the back. Your teacher will meet you back there. Um, so while they're going, why don't we open with a word of prayer? Lord, we, uh, um, we thank you for the rain we got last night. Um, because we are in a drought, we need, we need the rain, and we know that you send it through natural processes that can be measured and observed. Lord, it is by your hand that it takes place. And uh, the intensity of the rain and the wind last night reminds us of our fellow countrymen in Texas who are uh, recovering from Hurricane Harvey. Uh, we pray that you would um, continue to work amongst them. Lord, we know that the church of Jesus Christ is very active in that area, and we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, we know that after FEMA and other relief agencies are gone, your church will continue to work, and so we, we're grateful. We pray for our participation in that. How can Trinity be involved with the relief that happens there? And Lord, we look forward to the uh, Irma coming into um, Florida with, um, with concern and fear because it's such an intense storm. We pray for the, the people in Florida as well, that they will have heard of uh, the damage from Harvey and, and be ready uh, for it. Um, Lord, that they would flee when they need to flee. And so, Father, we pray for your church in Florida as well as when she uh, brings relief efforts to the, the tragedy there. Uh, thank you that you have left uh, the, your church in the world to do these kinds of things, that we can care for those in need as you have cared for us. Um, Lord, uh, we want to pray especially for Jason and Lilith Stevens as Jason's getting ready to move back to Oregon. Lord, would you go before him and prepare a place? Uh, Lord, the needs that they have are um, a sufficient income, uh, a place to live, um, a place to worship, and we pray that you would meet them in all of those things in a way that would be um, miraculous, that they could only point to you and say, God has done this for us. And Lord, we thank you that we get to enjoy Lilith and uh, Sophia for a little bit longer. Uh, but as they prepare to go, we pray that you'd prepare for them a safe journey as well. And uh, Lord, I, I thank you the way that you have blessed this church with the fulfillment of the Great Commission, um, especially the go part. We, we tend to send people out quite a bit. And uh, so as they go, we pray that they are uh, fitted with the, the gospel of grace so that they might go out as disciples who make disciples. And we pray that for all of those who have moved on from our church, that you would bless them in those ways. Uh, Lord, we need to be equipped ourselves to be disciple-making disciples, and that's why we turn to your word. Would you speak now to us through it, from it? Um, as Kyle said, implant it deep in our hearts this morning, that we might hear and obey, that we might love and trust Jesus all the more. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we're finally at the end of chapter 22. It's been a long chapter, 71, 71 verses. And I got to tell you, I'm not real happy. The, the, the motion that we're going through here is we're heading toward the crucifixion. And it just is, I feel like I want to drag my feet and I want to take forever to get there because it is, it, it's going to be so hard to watch our beautiful Savior crucified. Um, but... Even this morning, what we're going to read, what we're going to look at is going to prepare us for that because the abuse starts now. Uh, the betrayal was previously, but now we begin to, to uh, see the abuse that Jesus is going to uh, suffer here. And really, 
what we're seeing in the next couple of uh, sections are three trials. There'll be three trials. The first one is civil, or, I mean is religious. He's taken before the religious leaders of the country. But what comes after that is going to be two civil trials. And so I decided to break it up. We'll look at the religious trial now, and then next week we'll take, probably take both the civil trials together uh, to see how that impacts us. And what we're going to learn this morning is the danger of religion without faith. That's what, that's what this trial is about, is the danger of religion without faith. Um, so uh, again, what's happening here is mostly narrative. And when you preach narrative, you have to approach it a little differently. So we'll take a look at what it says, and then we'll back up and kind of unpack what it means. Um, and on this one, it's not too hard, because as we move closer to the cross, Jesus speaks less and less. So when Jesus speaks, that's what this section's about. So when we get to this one, when Jesus talks, that's what this is about. That's how you can tell what this is about, is because God has spoken. In the midst of all of this silence, he's, he has spoken. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. Last week, I, I touched on uh, the, the, um, the guards uh, taunting Jesus, but I didn't really dig into it. So let's, I decided we should back up and look at that again, because this really is important. So it starts out, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, and they beat him. Uh, what we don't see in the English translation is something that Luke appears to have done very intentionally. That is, that word Jesus is not in the Greek here. What it says in the Greek is, now the men who are holding him. Um, and why is the big deal? Why, what's the big deal with that? Well, here's what's going on. I think if you were reading this whole thing in Greek, there would be a moment of confusion here. Because what was the last thing we read? Peter went out into the night and was crying. Actually, it says he went out into the night and wept bitterly. So when you get to this, what you hear now, the guards who are holding him. And I think what that should do to somebody who reads that would make you stumble and go, wait, wait, which him? Peter? Peter ran out. And then as you read a little further, it becomes very clear it's talking about Jesus. So why be so nitpicky over words? <laughs> Well, first of all, we believe that the Bible is inspired, and we refer to it as verbally inspired. And when we say verbally inspired, we don't mean that only the verbs are inspired. What we mean is it is inspired right down to the very words that they wrote. So first of all, we have to pay attention to the words because God did that. But secondly, we want to pay attention to this because Luke wrote this. And have we seen Luke be a clumsy writer so far? He's been extraordinarily precise. He's just been nailing stuff very clearly for us. So when I approach this and I see this momentary confusion, I have to say, there's a reason for that. There's something going on here. God wrote it this way. Luke wrote it this way because they intend something for us. And so what I think is going on is we are supposed to, for that brief moment, link in our heads Peter and Jesus as this is happening. Now, last week when I, when I talked about this, I said what happened was Peter ran out and he wept bitterly, and then the scene changes to Jesus, and we see what would have happened to Peter had he stuck around. But now I want to take that a little differently and say, now look at what's going on with Jesus, and don't forget Peter. Um, that sounds like it may be a little bit, eh, so what, Tim? Later in the sermon, we'll bring that back in, and I'll show you how that fits together. So we just needed to look at that real briefly. So what happens is these men have taken Jesus, they blindfolded him, they beat him, and they say, prophecy, who struck you? The men who hold him, the men who have custody of him, are probably the temple guards. This is not Roman centurions here. This is probably the temple guards. Now, the temple guards would have been Jews 
who would be in the temple courts and make sure that people weren't violating the laws. So if a Gentile walked into the court, the temple guards would rush in and escort them back out. And actually they had the right, the legal right to execute them. So these are not just, you know, like wimpy little guys, you know, point, wagging a finger at somebody. These are, these are hardened soldiers. But they blindfold Jesus and they smack him and they say, who hit you? Now, what were they expecting at this point? What were they thinking? Wouldn't it have been something if Jesus standing there with a bag over his head said, uh, Joseph, son of uh, Benjamin from the tribe of uh, Naphtali, you're the one who hit me. What would they have done at that point? That certainly would have surprised the daylights out of them because what we're seeing here is they are mocking Jesus because they believe that he is a false prophet. Now, as we've gone through the whole Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been nothing but spot on with every single one of his prophecies, including this one. Do you remember from Luke 18 what he told his apostles? He said, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem where he will be shamefully treated. That's what's happening here. Shamefully treated. He will be arrested, handed over to the Gentiles, and executed and raised on the third day. So is Jesus a prophet? <laughs> Absolutely. What are these guys expecting? What we're seeing here is they don't believe him. They're mocking him because they think he's a false prophet. And now what's happening here, it just, it, Luke kind of shifts the scene real quick. It's not like the guards were standing there holding Jesus politely until Peter fled and then they started whacking him around. This has probably been going on all night. As they're holding him, waiting for the trial to, to start, they're abusing their prisoner. Um, it, it seems real short here, but you've got to see this in, in the context of what's happening. He's arrested, he's taken into the high priest's house and abused until he's questioned by the, the council. And so that's what comes next is when day came. You remember all of this happened at night. Peter was drawn close to the fire late at night because it was getting cold. And he ran out in the night crying. And so now as Jesus has endured this abuse all night, day breaks, and the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both their chief priests and their scribes. So why they do it first thing in the morning? Well, they probably did it in the morning because they had to go out and get the chief priests and the scribes together to hold this meeting. So they had to have some time to gather them together. Jesus was arrested at night. Plus, the civil authorities would convene their trials first thing in the morning. So now what's going on is they, they have Jesus. He's been abused all night and the, the council assembles because they want to hurry up, get him judged and handed over to the civil authority so he can be executed quickly. Why the hurry? Well, we're in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're heading towards not only a Sabbath, but the Passover. And they want to get this whole thing cleaned up before that. If Jesus is just sitting in jail for a while, word's going to get out. And his supporters might start causing trouble. So what they're thinking is, we want to secure our country. we got to get rid of this guy quickly. And so they're rushing through it. So the whole assembly comes together. And what it says after that is, and they led him away to their council and said. Um, that word council is actually the word Sanhedrin. Uh, but you'll notice that the ESV didn't translate it as Sanhedrin. And there was only one translation I could find that translated it as, as Sanhedrin, and that was the um, uh, Christian Standard Bible, a new translation. Uh, why is it not translated that way? It's because of that one word, their council. The Sanhedrin was a known body of ruling elders in Israel, 
it would make no sense to say their Sanhedrin. And this probably is not the full Sanhedrin. This is a, a, a hastily assembled group of leaders. So they led them into their council. He led them away to their council. Actually, one translation puts the word chamber in. So it wasn't that they took him before the Sanhedrin. It took him to where they could meet and interrogate him. They took him into the chamber. Are you getting the flavor that this might be done illegally? That this is being done so hastily they're not paying attention to the laws? There's a, a, a document called Sanhedrin in, in, uh, in, uh, in Hebrew, and it gave the rules for the laws of how you tribe somebody. And I got to tell you, what we're about to look at violates most of them. You were supposed to have a two-day trial to establish the man's guilt or innocence. You had to have proper witnesses. You had to have certain testimony. Um, and they violate all of it. Now, it's possible the Sanhedrin did not apply at this point. It, it appears to have been written much later, like 150, 200 or something. And I just can't help but wonder, was that document written because of the way this trial was handled? Because the, the Jews have got to be looking and going, look what we did. We hastily threw this guy over to the Gentiles, got him executed, and now we've got this huge problem with all these, Jew, all these uh, Christians saying that he's risen from the dead. Now what are we going to do? So that's possible. But the point is, this is not a properly convened hearing. It's just not done right. And so they gather him together in the council, and they ask him directly, are you the Christ? Tell us. They want to know, do you claim to be the Messiah? Now, just like the guards, what is the only answer that Jesus can give them at this point? There ain't one. If he says yes, they're going to execute him. If he says no, then they're going to throw him out and say, well, you're a fraud, and they're going to execute him. So there's no right answer for these folks at this point. The only answer is, we've got to get Jesus executed. And so listen to his answer. They say, are you the Christ? If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, you tell us. And Jesus' answer is, if, um, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. So he looks right in their face and he says, if I tell you the truth, you're not going to believe me. If I say, yes, I'm the Messiah, you won't believe me at all. It ain't going to happen. But what is that thing about, if I ask you, you won't tell me? It's kind of an odd response to that. What I think is going on here is Jesus is pointing back to the beginning of chapter 20. Remember, they came to him and they said, by what authority do you do these miracles? And what, what authority do you have to do these things? And Jesus' response was, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, I'll answer you. John the Baptist, from heaven or, or not? And they stumble because they said, well, if we say he's from heaven, he'll get mad because we didn't follow him. If we say he's not from heaven, then the people are going to get mad. So they look at Jesus and say, we don't, we don't know. And he said, then I'm not going to tell you either. So I think that's what he's referring to is he's looking at these, these leaders. He's saying, you guys, we have already gone over this. I told you, as soon as you answer me about John's authority, then I'll tell you who I am. So if I told you, you won't believe. And if I ask you again, you're not going to answer me. You're going to give me the same lame answer because you're trapped and you know it. And so they're pushing against him. And, and so they will not respond to him in any kind of favorable way. This is what I meant about religion without faith. They're faced with the evidence. This is the Messiah. Look at all he's done. Look at all he's been preaching. Look at all he's done. And they say, well, if you answer yes, you're the Messiah, we're going to execute you. Period. There's no way out of this. There's no good way out of this. And so they look at him. Oh, and then he, he responds further. He says, 
But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That seems a bit of a non sequitur. doesn't really connect, too, doesn't it? I think what Jesus is doing at this point is, one more time, inviting them to faith. He reminds them, we've already had this discussion back at the beginning of chapter 20. I have already told you that if you'll tell me who John is, in other words, he's saying, engage with John, figure out who John is, and then you'll get who I am. And they won't. And so one more time, he's throwing it to him, and he's saying, look, the Son of Man is going, to seat at the, or is going to be seated at the right hand of power. That's what's going to happen. He's inviting them one more time. He's telling them the truth one more time. Will you believe in me? But it's also a threat, isn't it? Because the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power means what you're about to do to me, you will be held accountable for. You're about to execute me, and when you do, I will be sitting at the right hand of God, and then what will you do? No prophet has ever made that kind of claim. So it, it's a combined threat, and it's an invitation. Hopefully it would scare them and shake them loose from their unbelief. But they don't. They want to argue more. So they look at him and they say, are you the son of God then? Now you notice how they went from the son of man seated at the right hand of God to the son of God. That is a very legitimate, valid theological movement to go that way. It is the Son of God who will be seated at his right hand. It is the Son of God who will have that kind of authority. And so they're not mistaken. They didn't get clumsy with their understanding. They knew the implication of what Jesus had just said. It's huge. So the first question is, are you the Messiah? The next question is, wait a minute, are you the Son of God? Are you claiming to be that person? And so Jesus gives them a non-answer. You say that I am. No, we didn't. We ask you. He's not denying it. He's not affirming it. He puts it back to them in a way that just leaves them hanging. But listen to their response. What further testimony do we need? We don't need any witnesses. We've heard it with our own ears. He blasphemed. He claimed to be the son of God. And that's their testimony. That's their trial. That's the whole thing. They have argued themselves into the point where they can do what they're going to do. So that's the narrative. That's the story. That's how it unpacks. What does it mean for us? Remember, I've been treating the Gospel of Luke as a manual for discipleship. Disciples are supposed to read this and say, ah, that's what it means to be a disciple. Well, here's the problem with this, is both the guards and the council are holding to their religion. They're holding to the rules of their religion without any faith. And I say that because if they had faith, if they trusted God, they would hear Jesus and say, this is God Almighty speaking to us. This, this is a voice we need to listen to. But instead, they're looking to their religion and saying, how can we use our religion to crush this person? How can we use our religious terms to destroy this person because he doesn't agree with us? And that's the danger of having a religion without faith. Because what you wind up doing is you wind up taking the rules of the religion and handling them clumsily like a, like a bludgeon to beat somebody to death with. And, and that's what's happening here is, is they have not gotten to the point where they said, wait a minute, we are sinners, all of us, fallen, broken sinners. We need to be saved by grace. We need to be saved by a God who loves us. Instead, what they're saying is, 
we've got it all figured out pretty well. We've, we've got it nailed down. And therefore, this guy who comes along who doesn't agree with us, he, he must be below us. He must be inferior to us. Therefore, we have to judge him. Instead of looking at him with grace, they're looking at him with, with this religious intolerance, this religious superiority, and they're going to judge him. That is the danger of having a form of religion without any faith in it. And really what's going on there is there's this, this gospel movement that really should permeate all of what we do. It starts with that statement, we are all sinners, saved by grace. We start with confession. We are fallen, broken people, all of us. So we don't look at each other and go, well, there's a sinner, and there's a sinner, and there's a sinner. What we do is we look at each other and say, brothers and sisters, I know what's going on. Been there, done that. You start with your humility, with your right standing before God, and then we look at each other and say, how are we saved? How is God going to redeem us into a body? We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. That's the only way we get here. So I can't look at you and go, well, we're saved by working really hard, and I worked harder than you, so I'm more saved than you are. We come to the cross, which we're heading towards quickly here. We come to the cross and we say, we're all at that same level. We are all broken, horrible people, and we're only saved because of God's grace. So once we get to that point, then we can get to, and this is how we should then live. This is how we should then be treating each other. This is how we should be treating the world. This is how we should be loving and caring for the lost and for each other. Not rooted in my superiority, but rooted in my brokenness and my fallenness and my need for a savior. But here's what happens is sometimes we forget the gospel part and we head right to the rules. And once we head to the rules, then we're very intolerant of other people. How can you be like that? Aren't, I thought you were a Christian and you're still struggling with this? I thought you, you should be over it. I'm over it. I got over it. I, I don't have that problem. So we wind up judging each other and heading right to the rules first instead of right to the gospel first. So that's the danger here is these folks refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. They refuse the message that God sent his son, the Messiah, to redeem them from their sins. They don't want that. And so when they employ their religion, they use it to kill him. Now, we have all been in or know somebody who's been in churches that are like this. They forget the gospel or they presume the gospel, and they go right to the rules. I've heard of people where the elders have gone over to women's houses or uh, couples' houses and looked through the, the closet to figure out, you can wear this, you can't wear that. The elders are going to people's houses and telling them what they can and can't wear. Where are we heading here? We're bypassing the gospel and heading right to the rules. I'm going to enforce the rules on you. So uh, I want you all on your communication card to sign up for the date that I can come over and look through your closets, all right? We know churches that do this, or we know people who have been victims of churches who've done this. They employ rules before they employ grace. But I got to tell you, it happens on the left as well. The liberal left has a problem with this as well. Because when you don't root your ethics, your morality in the gospel, when you just do it based on public opinion, that flails around and swings wildly and you wind up eating your own. So in 2005, uh, there are two Italian designers, uh, Dominic uh, Dose and um, Stefano Gabbani. Uh, Dose, or is it, am I saying that? Doce and Gabbana are this famous brand. 
Um, and, and I even use their aftershave sometimes. Big, band, big brand, well, in uh, 2005, they came out and they said, uh, they were talking about children from in vitro fertilization, you know, ar uh, artificial insemination children. They said, these children are chemistry, synthetic children, uteruses for rent, semen chosen from a catalog. And then um, Dominico Dolce added, I'm gay. I cannot have a child. I guess you can't have everything in life. Life has a natural course. Some things cannot be changed. One is family. So they have violated the left's religion of tolerance by saying children artificially inseminated into gay families aren't really proper families. That violates that dogma. And so here's the response. Elton John, who is in a long-term committed homosexual marriage and has two children by in vitro fertilization with his, his husband, came out and said against them, how dare you refer to my beautiful children as synthetic? And shame on you for wagging your judgmental little finger at in vitro fertilization, a miracle that has allowed legions of people, both straight and gay, to fulfill their dream of having children. Your archaic thinking is out of step with the times, just like your fashions. I shall never wear Dolce & Gabbana ever again. What we have to see here is this is the same in, this is the same action, the same motion, when the churches over, just ignore the gospel and head right to the rules. It is the same thing. Except we have at least a Bible to pull some rules out that I can beat you over the head with. In, in the liberal left, when we have a form of religion with no faith, no undergirding to it, it just flails around like a sail on a ship, not tied down knocking anybody overboard who, who, tends, who dares violate the, the dogma of the weak. So this is what is going on with Jesus in this religious trial. Religion has overstepped its bounds. And, and it's really important that when we, do, when we um, engage each other, when we share our life together, that we don't forget the gospel, that we don't forget those first two steps in that gospel walk. Ladies and gentlemen, you are all sinners, just like me. Ladies and gentlemen, you are all saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It is God's grace by which you are saved, period. Don't ever forget that. So when you see your brother or sister wandering off the path and beginning to sin, do exactly what Paul has said in Galatians, which is check yourself first. Remind yourself of the gospel first. Otherwise, you're in danger of turning your religion into a bludgeon that you're going to beat somebody to a pulp with. So when we correct each other, when we encourage each other, when we are leading each other to be better disciples, we do it only under the guise of the gospel, only under the fact that we are sinners saved by grace first. What these folks are doing, what this trial in these... these um, these guards are doing is they are forgetting all of that and they're simply saying you have violated our rules you have stepped over the bounds and violated our rules it's a scary thing and if you think I'm just being paranoid about this in, uh, in a church setting and saying well you know it could happen there is actually um, an atheist philosopher named um, Alain de Botan and he's an atheist and he gave a TED talk you all know what TED talks are 
technology, education, and design. They're 18 minutes of speaking by really super smart people. And it's, it's often really engaging. Depotan gave a speech where he said, what can atheism learn from religion? I was surprised, because usually it's the other way around. Atheism has got nothing to hear from us, only to say to us. But de Botan, what he did in his TED Talk is he pointed to John Wesley, and he said Wesley was this great preacher who went up and down England, and he told people how to live. He, he gave speeches, he gave these sermons on the duties of parents to their children and children to their parents. And he said, that's what religion is about, is about following the rules and how to live more effectively. And in the West, in our atheistic, secular culture, what we've done is we've thrown off the sermon form and we go with the lecture form. And the lecture form is simply to impart knowledge. He said, but the sermon is there to inspire godly, or he didn't say godly, inspire somebody to live better. So he, his claim, Debatant's claim is, what we need to do is recover, or I guess capture, I guess would be another way to say it, the sermon tradition so that we can encourage people to be good for goodness sake. Because we want to be good atheists. And so we're going to throw off that religion stuff and we're just going to do this. The danger of that is, what is good? Define for me what good is. Because 15 years ago, good would not have been homosexual couples having in vitro or fetal uh, uh, produced children. That would not have been good but now it's just the received norm. So 60 years ago, abortion would not have been good. Now Planned Parenthood is giving free abortions to anybody in Florida who's affected by the storm, because you get to survive your, the, the hurricane, but your children don't. That would not have been considered good. So tell me, what is good? And see, that's what I mean by if you don't have this rooted in the gospel, if you don't have this rooted in faith in Jesus Christ, the good flails around. It can change from day to day. One day you're on the good side, the next day you're on the bad side. So this is not just me being paranoid about what's going on in the church. This is actually something that's implemented in broader society. And if we follow Debaton's lead, we wind up with a new breed of Pharisee. We wind up with a new breed of counsel who will call people in and demand things from them, even though they know the truth. And it's not just this guy you've never heard of, Dave Botan. There's other people, other famous atheists who are doing this as well. Sam Harris is a medical doctor, uh, uh, one of the, what they call the new atheists, the angry group. And he's written a book about being good without God. We can, we can scientifically derive morality. They're, they're trying to enforce this morality rooted in nothing but public opinion, rooted in nothing but what they think is right or wrong. So today it might be, um, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. In 10 years, the hurt anybody else might wind up with a question mark next to it. Maybe I enjoy hurting other people. Why should I sacrifice that? And that's what you get when you don't start with with a morality rooted in the gospel, when you don't start with a reality rooted in who God is. Because as Christians, we look at this and we say, wait a minute, God created Adam and Eve in his image. Together, they are his image. Women are not inferior to men. What came off of the ark after the flood was Noah and his sons, not different races of people. The human race came off of that. 
And so once we've started with a morality rooted in the gospel, rooted in what God has done in history, we can't get to racism. We can't get to sexism. There's just no way to get there because we've, if we do, we've forgotten how God has created us. So this is something that is really important. And this trial of Jesus shows us the shocking reality of religion or disjoined from faith. So what I want to warn you today is one of the most dangerous things you can do is come to church. It's startling how dangerous. Do you realize what you people do every week? You put yourself in real peril because one of two things can happen here. You could hear the gospel. You could be reminded again and again and again of your need to be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And it could change you. It could, it could totally uproot your, your whole way of thinking about the world. It could make you compassionate to people you really enjoy hating. That's a dangerous thing that could happen to you. The other side of this is dangerous as well. You could miss the gospel or go to a church that forgot the gospel and be given the rules. And then you're let loose on the world with your new set of rules. And you are going to tell everybody how wrong they are. I, I got and I have it from God how wrong you are. I, great news for you. I'm here to correct you. Do you see how either side of this horse you fall off on, you wind up in a swamp? It could be really dangerous. <laughs> you either get changed into a person that's humble and loving, or you get changed into a person who would haul Jesus up and smack him in the face and say, who hit you? You turn into a person who would ask Jesus directly to his face, are you the Messiah? And if you say yes, I'm going to kill you. That's the danger of coming to church. It's frightening. And I expect to see you all back here next week. If you don't, I'm coming over to your house and looking through your closet. <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> so remember I said at the beginning, this whole thing with this confusion about Peter, what's going on there? Well, really what's happening here is I think Luke is drawing us back to the gospel in this confusion with Peter because what he's showing us here is Jesus suffering under religion is tied to Peter's denial. Think of Peter for a moment. He chose to tell the people who asked that he didn't know who Jesus was, that he wasn't one of them. The, he brought this sorrow, this godly sorrow, on himself because he, he refused to acknowledge his Savior before everybody else. So when he flees out into the darkness and he's weeping, last week I said that was godly grief, and it's a good grief because it leads to faith and salvation. But it's the sorrow that he's bearing is his own. It, it, he brought it on himself. Jesus is standing here being smacked in the face by guards. Did he do anything to deserve that? He did nothing. All he has been doing, his entire ministry, has been preaching the gospel, has been telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he is bearing none of this on his own. And so I think when, when Luke brings those two things together for that moment of confusion, he's, he's reminding us, Jesus is bearing our burden here. Jesus is coming to redeem us from religion by suffering under religion so that we can be free from religion to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as he goes to the cross. 
as it gets closer and closer, we'll hear this message over and over again. And the reason we need to hear it is because we forget it. Jesus bore your burden. He took the indignation that would be due to you by those religious types out there who don't believe in God. He bore that for you. And he brought it to a crushing end. And so that's why I think what, what Luke did there is to draw us back into this story. Because at this point, it would be very easy for us to stand back and watch it like a TV show where Jesus is being paraded before these, these mock trials. But we need to remain emotionally connected to Christ at this point. And why is that? Because of the gospel walk. You are sinners. You are saved by grace because Jesus died for your sins. We can't disconnect that from even these trials. Even as difficult as it is to, to watch this happen to our beautiful, wonderful, gracious Savior, we need to remember that's my sin that's leading him through these things. He's doing this to bear my sin away from me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please, please, we, we need you to not let us forget the gospel. The good news, Lord, that you came to save sinners. Lord, it slips away from us as we focus on so many other things. And, and I just pray this morning that we would have that moment of confusion where we see our sin and you being abused. And remember that those things go together. Lord, would you spare us from religion devoid of faith? Rules with no mooring, no grounding in anything real. Lord, I, I think of what Moses said to you when he, he saw you on the mountain. He said, show me who you are. Show me your glory that I might be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we need to see the glory of Christ in order that we might be pleasing in your sight. In other words, we cannot please you apart from faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.